This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, September 8th. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Virginia Allen. On today's show, Kate Trinko talks with Paul O'Reilly, the incoming president of the Catholic Liberal Arts University Thomas Aquinas College. They discuss what makes Thomas Aquinas College unique and the importance of a liberal arts education. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. And now, on to today's top news. On Tuesday, the Taliban announced the formation of an interim government in an attempt to formalize their control over Afghanistan. The leadership of the interim Afghan government, now known as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, is made up exclusively of Taliban veterans. Haibatullah Akunzada, the Taliban supreme leader, will retain overall control of the affairs of state, while Mullah Muhammad Hassan Akhund, a noted Taliban religious leader, will act as interim prime minister. In a press statement released Tuesday announcing the new government, Akhunzada said, Our previous 20 years of struggle and jihad had two major goals. Firstly, to end foreign occupation and aggression and to liberate the country. And secondly, to establish a complete, independent, stable, and central Islamic system in the country. Experts have argued that the formation of this new government indicates previous assertions by Taliban officials about building an inclusive government were false. Here's heritage expert Peter Brooks describing the consequences of the Taliban-dominated government per Fox Business. I think the Taliban are recalling the shots. Uh, Even if they bring in some folks that may make them look inclusive to the international community, once again, I think the Taliban is going to be deciding the policies of that government. And we know exactly what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the Taliban. We know their associations. They're fighting alongside al-Qaeda today uh, against some resistance groups in in parts of Afghanistan. They had a long relationship with groups like terrorist groups like the Haqqani Network and al-Qaeda. So, I mean, I I don't know that you can bring people into the government, but really my sense is that the Taliban is going to have a a huge stamp on the policies of uh, Afghanistan going forward. Thus far, no foreign governments have extended diplomatic recognition to the Taliban government, but Russia, China, Qatar, Turkey, and Pakistan have all kept their embassies open in the country. Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul says new documents prove that Dr. Anthony Fauci lied to Congress about the funding of research at the Wuhan lab in China. Fauci heads the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and Senator Paul has previously accused the group of funding gain-of-function research at the Chinese Wuhan lab. Gain-of-function research is the practice of making a virus more infectious for the purpose of studying it. During a congressional hearing in July, Fauci said funding from his organization was not used to fund gain-of-function research. But Paul says that new public documents prove otherwise. A story by The Intercept published Monday reports that more than $3 million of government money was given to the organization EcoHealth Alliance for bat coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. About 600000 of that $3 million was specifically used by the Wuhan Institute of Virology to fund and change bat coronaviruses that can jump to humans, according to the report. In a tweet Tuesday, Paul wrote, Surprise, surprise, Fauci lied again. 
and I was right about his agency funding novel coronavirus research at Wuhan. Rutgers University molecular biologist Richard Ebright wrote on Twitter that the document makes it clear that Fauci was untruthful about the National Institute of Health's funding of gain-of-function research. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a series of election integrity laws on Tuesday, making Texas the latest state in the union to reform its voting laws. The bill has been a top priority for Abbott and the Texas GOP, who view the reforms as necessary to combat voter fraud. During the event celebrating the signing of the election integrity bill, Abbott said, It does make it easier than ever before for anybody to go cast a ballot. It does also, however, make sure it is harder than ever for people to cheat at the ballot box. The bill has attracted controversy. Back in May, Texas Democrats fled to Washington, D.C. to protest the bill and to prevent a quorum needed to conduct business. The city of Portland, Oregon, might boycott the state of Texas over its new pro-life law. Texas has passed legislation to ban abortion after a baby's heartbeat can be detected, which is usually around six weeks of pregnancy. Last week, the Supreme Court denied a request to block the pro-life law from taking effect while a legal battle continues over the legislation. The bill is the most restrictive abortion law in America and has been receiving a great deal of pushback from the political left. The Portland City Council is voting today, Wednesday, on whether or not to ban future procurements of goods and services from Texas and to ban the funding of city employee travel to Texas. A press release from the office of Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler said the abortion ban violates the separation of church and state and it will force people to carry pregnancies against their will. Now stay tuned for Kate Trinko's conversation with the incoming president of Thomas Aquinas College, Paul O'Reilly. The Heritage Foundation has a new website to combat critical race theory. CRT, as it's known, makes race the centerpiece of all aspects of American life. It categorizes individuals into groups of oppressors and victims. The idea is infiltrating everything from our politics and education to the workplace and even our military. Heritage has pulled together the resources that you need to identify CRT in your community and the ways to fight it. We also have a legislation tracker so you can see what's happening in your state. Visit heritage.org CRT to learn more. Joining me today is Paul O'Reilly. He is the incoming president of Thomas Aquinas College, a Catholic liberal arts college, which has campuses in both Southern California and Massachusetts. Paul, thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Kate. And I should note, I do have to make a disclosure about this interview. I am a graduate of Thomas Aquinas College. I spent four great years there, learned a lot, talked a lot. Um, so going to just acknowledge I'm a little biased here. So, Paul, first off, what makes Thomas Aquinas College different from other colleges and universities? Yeah, that's a good question. There, there's a number of ways in which uh, we have a unique program. Um, it's In one way, it's easy to see what we don't offer. We do not have majors uh, or minors, no electives, no program overseas. But more, maybe positively, I'd say it's a unified program. We have four years of theology, four years of philosophy, but also four years of mathematics and four years of natural science. And then in addition to those core uh, subjects, we have language, which is study of language through Latin. 
music, and then in a class that we call seminar, we study literature and history. So uh, that's a kind of the overview of what the college offers, and uh, we do so because we, we think that liberal education is important, um, and that it's important to have a unified program when all the parts fit together nicely. So for example, in our freshman year, uh, we study Euclid's Elements, the first uh, kind of complete uh, analysis of uh, geometry. And that helps in a number of ways. The, the young people get a sense of you can know something, you can argue and prove things that are so, but also it helps us in our logic tutorial with freshman philosophy so they understand how premises lead to conclusions. And that, that kind of... Uh, that kind of unity really does help them understand not just the, the mathematics itself, but they can know things, and the way they know things are from premises to conclusions. So I think that's something that's, that's pretty distinct about Thomas Aquinas College. And I will note, although I personally hated Euclid, I did learn <laughs> a lot about from it. Had a great professor. So you mentioned that these are all part of the liberal arts. What is the liberal arts, and what's the history of studying these things together? Uh, that's a, another good question. Uh, I guess traditionally the liberal arts were divided into the quadrivium and the trivium. Just the quadrivium were the mathematically based uh, disciplines, geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and music, curiously, because music can be studied mathematically. And then what you might call the verbal, which is uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, that would comprise the trivium. But Although that's traditionally the seven, what the seven liberal arts are, nowadays I think liberal arts and liberal arts education is more synonymous with liberal education. And that's an education that doesn't principally look to practical pursuits, though it's not impractical, uh, or the necessary things that take up much of, of, of the time in our lives. Rather, it, it pursues knowledge that perfects human beings just by knowing things, so, for example, in our sophomore philosophy, we study Aristotle's On the Soul. And in that, uh, in that semester, we come to understand what is the soul. And Aristotle's got a really interesting argument there that the soul isn't the body. It's not a bodily thing. And he argues that from nature and philosophical principles. But that's, that's worth knowing just for its own sake. It's not necessarily something you would take out and get a job or, or uh, have some particular practical uh, application. It just it helps us understand who we are, what we are, and as a result, even what are our ethical and political responsibilities. So in addition to having an unusual curriculum, Thomas Aquinas has what I'd call an unusual classroom approach. It's not a professor lecturing all the students. Uh, talk to our audience about how classes work at TAC. Yeah, we describe it as either the Socratic method or the discussion method. And, and really what that means is just as you, as you mentioned, the, the professor isn't there to, um, to profess an understanding of a particular text or a particular matter. In fact, we call our teachers tutors, which means that they function as guides. Um, they, they're more... Uh, more prepared. They obviously understand the material in a more deep way, but still they're, they're functioning in class as guides. So what that means is the students before each class 
have to prepare a text. You have to read a text and read it kind of carefully with a view to discussing it with their peers uh, uh, around the table. Um, and so that means that they must be active. They must have some understanding and even some questions and some confusions about the text before they come to class. It's also our view that the author of the text is the principal teacher. Again, the, the, our, our tutors, or guides, the author is the principal teacher. And that's kind of an interesting, uh, I think, approach because, listen, the, the authors don't all agree. Uh, Marx doesn't agree with, with uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, doesn't agree with others. So you can see that although we're trying to understand what the uh, author is, is telling us, the goal is not just to understand the author's view, but ultimately to judge the truth and falsity of it. And that's what we do day in and day out around the table. Now, I know that you, over the years, have taught a lot of classes yourself, although I never actually had you. But um, how do you think they work out in practice? I could see people thinking, you know, hey, when I was a teenager, I wasn't that smart. Or I know a lot of idiot teenagers now who, you know, like Marx and things like that. Does it really make sense for a group of students to be primarily learning from each other? Yeah, well, that's a good that's a good question. And I think that's uh, a kind of a uh, a common criticism of Thomas Aquinas College. They sometimes say it's just a mass exchange of ignorance. But I, I don't think it's quite right to say uh, that the, the students are learning from each other. Sure, the, the students are all working together, but principally they're learning from the author of the, the book, whether it's Aristotle or Augustine, and even if it's Marx, to understand why Marx has the view that he does, and ultimately where it goes astray. So in, in a way, if the tutor is, is, is effective, he's guiding the students to understand what the position is, how it compares with other positions that they've read before. Um, and so, so they're, although they're helping each other, I would say principally they're learning from the authors. Okay. Well, in the past couple of years, we've had some pretty heated debates in the United States about our history, about Western civilization, about, you know, what thinkers we should care about and not care about. So at Thomas Aquinas, students don't take a history class per se, although, as you mentioned, they do read historical works in the program. But of course, the whole program is reading the work of the world's greatest thinkers over the years. So how did you decide what thinkers to feature in the curriculum? And does that list ever change? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, there's been a long-standing tradition of what the great books are. Now, maybe that's more more challenged nowadays, but usually for political correct reasons, not because uh, a serious uh, study of the authors themselves. But for a long, long time, the University of Chicago, among others, had pu published the the great books, and so there was a general understanding: if you were to be educated, you should know Homer. You should, should, should have read the Iliad and the Odyssey. You should have read Herodotus and Thucydides among the historians. That You should read Euclid as a, a, a geometer and Aquinas and Augustine in theology. And that was a view not just for, for Christians, but all, all uh, kind of serious thinkers thought there, there, are, there are some books that are better than others. And so the, that they, they were the, the great books. Now... Although there's a generally accepted view about what the great books are, where people of goodwill can disagree, especially around the contemporary works, and, and at Thomas Aquinas College, we have we have changed some of the the readings that uh, 
we assign, but usually it's in the, the senior year, the more contemporary works. So for example, this year we read Flannery O'Connor. Um, we added her to the program and, and Willa Cather. Those are great, uh, wonderful texts. Um, and they're accessible in some way and address some of the contemporary issues in a literary fashion. Um, which we think is really helpful. So we will add some things, and then people of goodwill can disagree about, do you need to read uh, Willa Cather to be liberally educated? Maybe, maybe not. But uh, at least in the core, the, the basic texts, I think there's general agreement among academics that some books are better than others and worth studying. So at Thomas Aquinas, students also read some of the works by the Founding Fathers and, as I recall, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. How does that affect their view of the United States? I think that's a wonderful, timely question, uh, Kate, because it, 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 I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Ireland. Uh, I, I um, became an American citizen about 15 years ago. I am shocked to hear some of my fellow citizens denigrate the Founders denigrate the principles that make this country great, suggest that um, we're a fundamentally racist country. I think that's simply not true. I know that we've had awful parts of our history that we're ashamed of. But if you, one of the things that we do with our students is we read the Declaration, we read the Constitution. As you say, we read the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And if you, if you read those carefully, you see at its core, in its principles, America is not just a great country. It is not in any way a racist country, despite, again, um, acts of racism. So, for example, in, in the Declaration, uh, we read and take seriously the claim that all men are created equal. Now, one of the things we read as a kind of a challenge to how to understand that is uh, the Dred Scott decision, and that was a Supreme Court decision, which is shameful, in which the Supreme Court argued that that must mean, because of the existence of slavery at the time, that must mean only all white men, and males generally, are equal. That's simply not what the words mean, and Lincoln helps us walk through, an, uh, I think, a coherent understanding of the Declaration and the Constitution, so that we have a better understanding of what this country is all about, and I think it, the result, in the, at least in the classroom, is greater patriotism, love for the country, and understanding of what makes it great. Yeah, and I think one of my biggest takeaways from my student time was reading all these great thinkers, both United States and international, made me realize how much people had gotten wrong in the past, which is helpful because right now I think we have a lot of uh, folks who think that they have everything absolutely right. And when you've had the humbling experience of reading smart people get things wrong, you realize it's probably unlikely that there's any group of people that is everything absolutely right in one day and age. Yeah, so true. That is. All right. Well, back in 2015, Senator Marco Rubio said um, during a presidential debate, welders make more money than philosophers. We need more welders and less philosophers. <laughs> did he really say that? He oh, did. He yeah. did. Rubio has since changed his mind somewhat. Uh, he tweeted something somewhat sympathetic to philosophers a couple of years later. But how you've talked about how the curriculum is beneficial for its own sake. But how do students coming from Thomas Aquinas, um, how do they do in the job market? And what is career preparedness at the college? Yeah, that's something actually I think uh, preparing for careers is, is something we've gotten a little better at over the years. 
But uh, initially, our view was, you know, you throw them into the, the waters and they, they'll figure out how to swim <laughs> on their own account. But, but we do have some career advisement, some uh, practical guides to give our, our seniors how to present their education in a way to employers that is attractive, um, to understand the good things that they have, um, have acquired at the college, and especially the ability to read carefully, to agree and disagree respectfully, to understand things and their principles, to articulate what it is that they understand and what it is they don't and how, how they can progress in that way. Um, those are really excellent skills in the marketplace. And we have now many employers who come to the college um, to uh, interview our students because they like what they see. And then a number, there's a big healthcare company here in Southern California that every year sends executives to interview people who might be interested in working in the healthcare field. Obviously, we have school districts and charter schools that come out every year because our, our again, our students are uh, they're excited about the intellectual life, want to make a difference in their uh, communities. And um, they, they, they try to encourage them to think about uh, working in, in their school system. So uh, I think what happens is this, that our students, have, if they give themselves to the program, really have uh, skills that are easily translatable in many different fields. And so we have our, our good share of lawyers and doctors. We have teachers. We have IT specialists. Uh, but there's no, there's no discipline that... that uh, are no field that, that our students can't pursue if they have the interest. So student loan debts are increasingly becoming a big issue in the United States. And of course, we've all heard stories about, you know, people graduating with insane, sometimes even six figures worth of student loans. So how does Thomas Aquinas College's financial aid program work and what principles govern those decisions? Okay, well, that's a good question. Um, one of the, I, I'm currently the vice president for advancement. I will, as you mentioned, uh, move into the president's uh, office next next year. But one of my principal tasks is to raise uh, every year funds uh, for our financial aid program. And the financial aid program is very simple. It's this, that we will accept any student who is willing and able to do our program. And once uh, a student has been accepted, then we work out the financial aid if it's needed. So if, if there's a need, it has to be a demonstrated need. Um, the, the parents fill out uh, the financial aid paperwork. But then the college will provide uh, loans, grants that are necessary for the student to, to attend the college. Now, our, our tuition room and board is relatively uh, low, around 35000 uh, all in. Uh, all our students are required to live on campus. So even, even in my own daughter, who's a sophomore here, we live three minutes away. She's required to live on campus because that community life is so important. So all students will be paying tuition, room, and board. But what we do is we cap uh, student loans such that no student graduates with more than $19,000 in debt. And um, in order to do that, we have to raise the money to fund our financial aid program. And then uh, any student who's going to receive, uh, wh whether it's a loan and or a grant, 
they must work uh, on campus for 13 hours. So they have to give back to the campus too. They have to work on campus, whether it's in the grounds, in the office, or the kitchen, or wherever, uh, in order to get financial aid. And I will say during my time there, one thing that impressed me was there was true economic diversity. There really were classmates who were taking full advantage of the financial aid, and there were folks who didn't need any. And I think that's something that we talk a lot about, but I'm not sure how many colleges actually have it. So you mentioned the community. So right now, the culture at a lot of universities is fairly dismal. Um, A lot of college students seem to be liberal, if not frankly communist. They're atheists, they're agnostic, even if they were raised in a religious household. Um, even when you get outside of ideology, there's issues of sexual assault, of binge drinking, and we're beginning to see studies showing that younger Americans in Gen Z are having more mental health struggles than past generations. So what is Thomas Aquinas trying to encourage in its campus cultures and its communities, and how is it grappling with some of the issues affecting today's students? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Thomas Aquinas College is not going to be immune from some of those issues because, listen, uh, I think the the culture has gotten worse and families are are becoming, at least in some cases, more dysfunctional. Uh, I have seen this with uh, teenagers. They're they come and, and some of them are just unhappy and, and so you have to you have to take people as you find them. But what we do is uh, you know we've got three or four prong approach. First of all, we have rules of residence that are meant to uh, foster good habits. So whether it's as simple as there's, there's no alcohol in the dormitories, um, we do serve uh, wine and beer at certain college events to those who are of uh, legal age. Uh, we have a curfew so that students can come back to the dormitory, get some rest, be prepared for class, etc. Uh, other rules about uh, how to, to behave around those of the opposite sex, etc. But rules are only uh, as good as, as the, the people who are in the community. And so we have to form our young people. Uh, fortunately, the juniors and seniors, the upperclassmen can be good examples. We have chaplains, four chaplains at the college here in California, two in New England, that also look uh, after the young people. We do have a counselor for those who need um, the the benefit of of his skills. So uh, we try to address the the things that we're discovering um, in in our culture in a way that improves uh, the lives of these young people, gives them support and encouragement. And I, I think generally... I mean, um, Anthony Hopkins, um, the, uh, the actor, came on our campus about a year and a half ago. And one thing he said to us is, these kids are happy. And I can see it in their eyes. And, and there is some, people notice that, 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 that this is a little respite from the, the, the things that ail us. Um, and, and I think in, in part that's because of the community that we form. So Thomas Aquinas has campuses in California and Massachusetts, which are two of the most liberal states um, out there, frankly. And I say this as a native Californian. Has the college faced religious freedom issues or other issues related to being a Catholic college in those two states? Yeah, listen, uh, if you would have asked us, would you have, would you want to have two campuses in Massachusetts and California? We would have said no. <laughs> um, the, the challenges are, 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 at least the potential challenges, are, are likely to be significant. But, you know, it's our view that, um, 
that God's ways are not our ways. Uh, the, the college received as a gift the land uh, in Santa Paula in the for the California campus, and it's turned out to be good. We, ha we own now about uh, almost 900 acres, so we have a little buffer uh, from the, the, the world. It's a, a little enclave. Um, and generally, generally, we, we don't get too much pushback from California or uh, the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. They're always challenging us about the number of our male authors as opposed to female authors, white uh, authors as opposed to minorities, etc. cetera. Uh, but our, our position there has always been we, we read the, the greatest books. We don't care about the... the the author himself, what what his background is, whether he's male, female, white, or minority, or whatever, um, we just try to look for the best. So that is a challenge, uh, but I think we're up to that. I'm a little bit more worried about what might come down the, the pipe. Um, you know, we have male and female dormitories, for example, and with the aggressive push to accommodate those who are confused about their sex, that could be problematic for us. But but it's our view that we have to protect the majority of our female students who want and seem and and do have a right to privacy in their own dorm life. I think it's against faith and reason to allow biological males in a female dormitory. Those are challenges that could come our way. But but we are not going to buckle under. Uh, we're not going to uh, give in. We think it's important to maintain principles that are rational and, and religious. So Thomas Aquinas College is actually hitting its 50th anniversary soon. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about the college and its unique approach? Well, it is exciting. Uh, not only are we uh, uh, about to celebrate our 50th anniversary, but we also this year, um, at the end of this academic year, will have our first uh, commencement on the East Coast campus. So 50 years suggests a kind of stability, but the fact that we're growing and have a second campus, and that second campus is thriving, is really, uh, it's exciting for us who have been at the college for a long time. And uh, I have seen, I've been to that East Coast campus many times, um, and it's so interesting to compare. We have a beautiful campus here in California. It's got that Spanish mission style of architecture, um, it's got the Southern California weather. You go to the East Coast campus, old New England buildings, beautiful in their own way. But then when you walk the campus, it's the same college. It's the, the same conversations over lunch. Uh, the faculty are wondering about the same issues. The students are engaged in the same conversations. It's really an exciting thing um, to witness. And, and the fact that we got actually that East Coast campus from the National Christian Foundation. We were the only Catholic organization that, that applied for it. Um, is, is extraordinary, too. And when we write the history of Thomas Aquinas College, that'll have to be part of, part of that story. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Paul. Well, thank you very much, Kate. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. 
The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.